Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I am doing fabulous today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today. Yes, indeed. And you know, it's beautiful here in Seattle. We're having a beautiful summer day. I wanted to give a quick shout out to one of the legends of our game who just got recently hitched in Santa Barbara. And I want to congratulate Joey Hudoklin and Amy Anderson for their recent nuptials in Santa Barbara. The pictures that I saw on Facebook just looked like everybody was sparkling. And another cool thing about it is that Chipper Bro Bell was the officiant. And uh, there was a picture of Joey in a white, crisp suit coming up over the sand and coming up to where they were going to get married. And it was like he was floating on a cloud of joy. So Amy and him looking just filled with joy. So I just wanted to give a shout out to that. And it was really cool to see Chipper being the officiant. And I'm pretty sure they went dropless. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I'm sure they went dropless, too. And I I just want to echo that, too. I want to say congratulations to Joey and Amy. It's really wonderful that you guys got married in Santa Barbara. Yeah, indeed. Well, speaking of that, didn't you also get married in Santa Barbara? Uh, In fact, I did get married in Santa Barbara. Lori and I got married um, on the Shelton's property uh, back in 2014. And it was... uh, it was uh, there were some similarities between the two. We had Rodney Sanchez as our officiant, so it was a very much frisbee uh, family get together, but also personal family get together, and it was just a, a wonderful, great time, great experience with everyone. You know, well, that is a great segue into our episode today, as we are going to continue our conversation with your lovely partner Lori Daniels, as she tells us more about her early days. Enjoy. When did you start picking up steam in your kind of first competitive uh, arena? So I would consider myself a very late bloomer when it came to all of this. I mean, I think I I prioritized my education and my career and dragged Frisbee with me. I literally dragged it with me and then connected it to wherever I could go. So my entry into the deeper layers didn't happen until after I finished graduate school, but I still infused Frisbee wherever I went. In 85, I took a job in Pennsylvania as a residential counselor at a program. And it was, I lived there for a year and it was between my college degree and uh, going in for my master's degree. And even in that particular job, I hooked up with Actually, it ended up, because Frisbee's everywhere, Frisbee players are everywhere. You just have to talk and find that out. But one of my colleagues, work colleagues at this residential program, her husband was the, one of the guys who organized Octet. <laughs> and so she herself and I, she, we, we would go disc golf together, and that's how I ended up playing my one and only, maybe to 85, 86 Octad in Pennsylvania. So, that, so I, I got to continue to play among my my familiar people in the East Coast in Octad, but now it started like expanding, right? Because now I'm in Pennsylvania. And then when I went to University of Chicago for my master's degree, again, carrying Frisbee with me, I hooked up with the ultimate team there. 
and we were not a strong ultimate team. There were no freestylers there. So I would, you know, pretty well practice or jam by myself in my dorm room uh, or in my apartment building in Chicago the two years I was there. Yeah, well, Chicago has a great history of really, really good ultimate teams. I mean, Windy City mm-hmm. was a hugely successful uh, ultimate team. And actually, Amy Schiller, one then Beckin, um, she got introduced to Frisbee Ultimate. Uh, that's where her journey began was in Chicago, and it went through Ultimate. So that's interesting. You have a kind of a connection there with her. Yeah, we probably overlapped because Amy and I are pretty much the same age. And so we probably overlapped at some uh, something in the Midwest at the same time, although she may have been there before me. But I was only in Chicago for two years, um, but it was fun. It was really fun uh, road tripping with an ultimate team, which I had not gotten a chance to do a whole lot of. And so that was a blast. And then I ended up moving, deciding that I wanted to live in the gorgeous Pacific Northwest. I had known people who were from the Northwest, Oregon and Washington. I'd seen pictures and blah, blah, blah. I'd been visiting there. And so I applied for a bunch of jobs in the Pacific Northwest and got hired in Tacoma, Washington. So I got out of grad school, traveled in Europe for a really fast few months, and then entered Washington in January 1988. And that's when um, I met the whole West Coast crowd. But because my job was all-encompassing and I was in Tacoma, I wasn't close to you guys up there in Seattle. Um, So I had to uh, hook up with, well, I did, happily, with um, Don and Carla Fogel because they were freestylers, like down the street. And so Don was actually a really good coach, really good coach. He was... uh, he, he uh, yeah he was a great teacher and he taught he taught me a lot of tricks uh of course he's the part of the the controllers right and so it was a lot about this st- holding the disc steady and doing these like really clean but center delay against moves right which actually meant you had to control the disc uh more often than letting it lean on it lean into the rim it was it was cool and then Carla and I ended up becoming freestyle partners and she was actually my first regular, real freestyle partner. And we would work on routines. And then Don got us excited about competing in the 1989 U.S. Open. And that's what we ended up doing. But then once in a while, I kept hearing about this group in Seattle at Green Lake. I would travel um, in my car 45 minutes from South Tacoma, and I would hook up with this small, brand new pod who I'd heard great things about at Green Lake. And I met Steve Hayes, also now known as the Beast. He wasn't called the Beast back then. It was just Steve. I met Randy Sylvie. I met Mary Lowry, then Mary Jorgensen. Actually, let me reel back on this story because I believe that I met most of those people at the Washington State Frisbee Championships. That's when I met everybody. 
And that was in Yakima, Washington. It's amazing, these memories, right? You dust it all off. I can't believe you mentioned Don Fogle and Carla Fogle. I haven't thought about those guys in ages. So, yeah, I mean, the dust is getting cleared off here as we go through this, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, my dust is overlapping now <laughs> with other people's dust. So, anyway, I decided, like, I'm driving to Yakima. I drove to Yakima, and I remember meeting all of the Pacific, most of the Pacific Northwest people actually happened in Yakima, Washington at the Washington State Frisbee Championships. And I had just checked in. I had driven by myself. I was meeting people. I think I may have started jamming with somebody off on the sideline. And then as I was freestyling, this blonde woman comes up to me, like while I'm jamming with the disc and I, I think she let me catch it or something, but she comes running up to me and she goes, who are you? Who are you? What's your name? <laughs> and uh, that was Brenda Savage. She came out of like nowhere and she was so happy to see a woman jammer uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And then that's when I also met Cindy and Jeff Kruger. Yeah. So uh, I, like it was it was a, an amazing weekend. Because I suddenly I met and got to know all of these people from Seattle and Yakima that I had not known. And, and Cindy and I made a great connection together. I mean, that's I believe that that's the time when when our friendship really launched. So suddenly I had this whole nother explosion of, of friends. But so for five years, I think I ended up sometimes freestyling with the Fogels um, until they stopped playing after a while. They just you know, it just sort of fell out. And then I actually then made more effort to come north and hang out with the, the Green Lake group. We would be out there, what, six hours, five or six yeah. hours on a Saturday and just jam our hearts out. It was amazing. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing you reflect because making me reflect, obviously, as well, because we were orbiting each other. 89 is kind of the year right when I started getting back into jamming. And so Dougie Fresh had just moved to Seattle and he was just this injection of newness into the scene. And that's kind of when mob hopping really became something that was super appealing to all of us. And the whole Green Lake jam scene there was just percolating and growing and the energy, like you say, we just jammed there for six, eight hours a day because, you know, we were just all so on fire and, and into it. And I, and I, I'd forgotten that you had come to the scene just as I was getting reintroduced to the whole world again. So that's kind of cool to reflect on. And those were, were those were wonderful. I mean, it was wonderful. Like Brenda was there, uh, Doctor Bob, Steve was there. He's a staple, right? He was the he was the grounding force, the anchor. He was literally the anchor that all of us, using your word, Randy, orbited around. Yeah. So I ended up getting a lot of. Wonderful, wonderful uh, freestyle time. And I still, but I still played the overalls, right? I still played, I played Oregon States. I played Washington State overalls. Uh, I've played Virginia States. I've played Maryland States. I've played, uh, uh, I hosted and played Hawaii States. So I really love the overall. So 89, that 88, 89 time frame is when you really started to flourish as a freestyler. I guess I didn't really realize that that time frame was such a big time of growth for you in freestyle. Yeah, I lived in Washington from 1988 to 1992. So that was my five-year window where I was 
really four and a half years window where I was really focused on hanging out with you guys and playing the overall and just doing my thing, right? But I, uh, but I had to commit, right? Because um, when I stopped playing with the Fogels, I had to commute all the way up from Gig Harbor to be able to, to be with you guys. And that's almost an hour drive each way. But it was so right. worth it, right? Yeah. It was yeah, so worth, worth it. it. So my first tournament was Yakima, Washington. And when I was there, I stayed on Jeff and Cindy's couch and a zillion other people were there. And it was this crazy party scene that just blew my mind as a young 21-year-old new new person to the scene. So I just want to ask you, you were there for many tournaments. Uh, do you have any stories from any of those tournaments? Anything exciting happen? Oh, there's always something happening. I mean, uh, Yakima became one of our other little hubs of, of Frisbee. Right, because there was enough frisbee players over there, enough disc players over there that um, that we congregated. But you know, there was also the Yakima Flight Festival um, that the Cougars would host at that beautiful field, and that's actually where you and I met, Jake, in 1996. But it was actually I warmed up that couch for you because I was I would squat that couch. That was my couch because I would just go over there for the weekends sometimes, uh, not always for an event, but sometimes just to just to go freestyle. I remember Steve and I driving together to visit them over in Yakima, and I would get the couch. I did see Randy uh, <laughs> tape his entire head with scotch tape. That's not surprising, right? <laughs> I could totally picture that. It doesn't seem surprising at all. Yeah, and that that was probably before I shaved off my eyebrows and, you know. Whatever else mayhem nailed may the wall ensued. at Larry's house. That's the one that I heard. Oh, I was the, yeah, I was there. I was there doing that. <laughs> you were there. You I were was there. there. Yeah. Oh my yep. god. Yeah. Yeah. I was there. Oh my god. Yeah. Was that was. <clears throat> Should we epic, talk about uh, that story? Even though it's uh, a Randy story more than a Lori well, I mean, story. <laughs> I didn't realize that you were there, Lori. I mean, there was a lot of people, and and Larry also one of those folks who housed a lot of folks at his place during tournaments that happened in Colorado. but yeah, yeah, so Bethany was there, Mary was there, you, me, a bunch of other people, of course, right? We were getting ready for the overall in Colorado, Fort Collins, too, yeah. right? But so uh, we're all there, and all I remember is that suddenly Mary comes running to, I think Bethany and I were hanging out and talking, you know, amongst other, she said, oh my God, Randy shaved off his eyebrows because his um, the premise that I had heard was that it was going to be an intimidation uh, for SUNY Wenzel. So when exactly. you saw SUNY Wenzel, <laughs> you were going to look at him with no eyebrows, and he was going to be so terrified that he would not be able to play well. Exactly. I also was really into overall, and SUNY Wenzel was kind of like the man. And so I was like, what can I do to you know kind of get him off kilter, get him on his heels? Like I think we were even put in the same golf group on the first day. So that is what inspired it. So I'm going to show up at the golf pad and I'm going to have shaved eyebrows. I'm going to look at him with, you know, these intense eyes. And it happened. And Sune being, you know, Mr. Cool and everything is like, hey, Randy, how's it going? <laughs> and then somebody had told me that, you know what? Your eyebrows don't grow back if you do that. And I think that was somebody trying to freak me out. And it did. I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to have eyebrows. And none of what I was planning to do worked out. It all backfired on me tremendously. And then, you know, of course, Suni, I think, went on to, I'm not sure if he won that overall, but he went on to do quite well. 
Shaved yeah, I work. think Larry felt really bad that he, he left his shaver out on the kitchen counter that day. <laughs> uh, I no don't one think can he take responsibility. <laughs> yeah. No, I think Larry may have even encouraged it. You know, I think there was tequila flowing as well. There might have been. There might have been. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. So before we move on to the next era in your freestyle career, um, are there any other memories from this era that you would like to share? Yeah, as a matter of fact, one of the big, wonderful memories I can think of is actually having a chance to participate in and then actually do a demonstration during the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum Frisbee Festival. So for those of your listeners who don't know, back in the late 70s and early 80s, um, all the way into the 90s, there was a... The, the National Smithsonian Institute has the National Air and Space Museum, and there used to be a huge field in front of that museum. There used to be this Frisbee Festival that happened every year. And in fact, in the early 1980s, as I was learning freestyle, and because I'm from Arlington, Virginia originally, I would know about this festival. And one year I actually went over there to learn more fr Frisbee tricks from the coaches, right? Because everybody had these Smithsonian shirts and they would be staff and there was all these different places where people could learn. But then there was all these, these once in a while, every few hours, there was a demonstration of some sort of skill. It would be dog Frisbee. Um, there would be freestyle, there would be disc golf or distance or something like that. Something that would be a draw for the audience members. It was huge. Thousands and thousands of people would show up there throughout the course of the day of the Frisbee Festival. So in 1990, I ended up actually being in Arlington visiting my family. And I had heard that the Frisbee Festival was going on. And by this time, my parents knew I was a Frisbee player. So they were like, are you going to do this? And I said, oh, my gosh, I didn't even realize. So there was a phone number in the newspaper about it. So I called, and I think I spoke to Larry Shindell, who was the coordinator. And I think he might have said, and I talked to him. I said, uh, I'm in from the East Coast. Do you need staff? Because I would love to staff this. And he goes, absolutely. It'd be great to have you just show up on this date and do this. And so I ended up going there. And, you know, doing what everybody else does, you know, you sort of have this area and you have a disc and you're like, you want to learn something? So families would come by, kids, and you're teaching them all sorts of stuff, whatever they wanted to know. But then um, somebody comes up to me and my sister came to, to hang out with me, too. And somebody comes up to me and says, there's no high level. There's like we don't have the world champions here for the freestyle demo because they're all at FPA Worlds right now in California. It was the same weekend. And they said, so we we could use somebody to play with Tammy Pelicane in a freestyle demo. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> and so um, it was a really special m memory. I mean, it's really, we were on the news and everything like that, but I've, I've never played with Tammy before. Uh, I barely knew her. I just knew she was a fabulous overall player. And then we get to participate in the big throw, right? So you see these pictures of the U.S. Capitol in the background and all these Frisbees in the air. That's called the big throw. And that was like the culminating moment of the Frisbee Festival at the Smithsonian. And I know like a lot of the people who you've interviewed on shooting the Frisbees have actually 
participated um, in the Smithsonian uh, Frisbee Festival before. It's it it was just a great a great thing, and I was really really honored to be a part of that because we don't well, have anything like that yeah. anymore. Yeah, and it's really cool that you got to do that uh, and participate in that festival because. Um, it did have such large audiences. And it's interesting because there's a fellow right now named Carl Cook who is posting some old photos from that event over the years. And you can see how big the crowd is. It's really pretty amazing. And when I look at that, I'm like, well, how did they get so many people to show up at that? Was it was it the Smithsonian sponsor that was there money behind advertising do you know how they got all those folks there like what did they do it was uh you know newspaper you know they would put uh an announcement in the newspaper and usually it'd be a pretty sizable thing in the washington post or the washington star depending so there was that uh there might have been some tv ads you know they they have some pretty incredible pictures right and Dog Disc has never lost popularity, right? And so they would feature a chance to see that. But then also, just in general, that part of D.C. called the Mall for a reason. And it's an area where literally on either side of this field are Smithsonian Institute. So just in general, people coming to D.C. as tourists and and stumbling upon it. So it was a combination of things, but mostly it was through probably TV ads, radio ads, and print ads in the newspaper. Um, right. And Whammo, right. Whammo would put money behind that. Wow, that was really interesting to hear Lori's experience at the Smithsonian Flight Festival and uh, just her, her thinking about how they got such big crowds, like being in a, in a place where there's already an ambient crowd it, it kind of makes it it makes it easier to get p- more people to watch your event. Just kind of sparks this whole thought process in my head about you know where do we want to host tournaments and how do we bring in a bigger crowd? And I, and I think about like this this discussion of do we want to go where the people are and not think so much about the conditions, which means people aren't going to play as well if the conditions aren't good, or do we go somewhere where the conditions are great so that people will play great, but maybe we won't have a crowd. You know, I kind of take a step back and think, well, why why do we want a crowd at an event? And I can think of two reasons. One is just the spread the jam reason. But I think, you know, with live streaming today, maybe that part of it is less important because we can really get the event out to people through broadcasting a lot better than we can with the on-site. But the other reason that I sometimes forget about, but I have a specific story that reminds me of that which is when uh, Dave Lewis, Randy, and I were playing co-op and we were practicing for the event and we were in a, a little uh, indoor gym in this little tiny spot and we were just slogging through the practice and the routine wasn't going well. We were dropping and we were tired. And then this couple came in and they sat down and they said, do you guys mind if we watch? And the next thing you know, we did another run through and I think we had one drop and we hit all the moves and we said, oh my God, this is a good routine and we can do it. And all we needed was somebody to watch us. And that's just like really reminder for me that having a local crowd actually feeds the players and helps them like they get a response from the crowd and then they end up playing better and they get a lot more into the zone. There is an importance in having a crowd at the event. God, that's so funny. I had totally forgotten about that experience. And uh, it actually was not a little gym. It was a racquetball court. Yes. And there, this couple was watching us through the window. And they're like, what are these freaks doing in there? And we noticed it. And we said, 
let's invite them in. And so we invited them in, they sat down and it totally got us focused. So you're right. When you have that third eye watching you, you know, the, the eyeballs of an audience, man, your focus just all of a sudden gets really crisp and focused and like you're paying attention to all the details. So yeah, there is a lot to be said for playing in front of an audience for sure. Yep, definitely. I'm curious if any listeners out there have a thought about have thoughts about playing in front of an audience versus playing in good conditions. Um, if you do, just go ahead and write comments on the on frisbeeguru.com underneath this post. Yeah, you know, I also want to give a mention to uh, the FPA and the discounts that they offer membership. So I actually just took advantage uh, of that and I bought some misprinted sky stylers from the Right Life that you can get. And as an FPA member, you put in your code and you get the discount. So I got my Sky Stylers for around $5 per disc. That is a great deal. And I would highly recommend people take advantage of it while it's there because it's not going to always be there. So definitely become a member, take advantage of those discounts, and you will not be sorry. So on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee.